Welcome to another episode of Europe's B2B SaaS sales podcast. Today with Jamal Reimer, a true legend if it comes to enterprise sales, closing um, 50 million deals like multiple times in his career at Oracle and now actually left Sama uh, only three months ago to found his own company, Mega Deal Secrets, to teach more sellers how to close big deals, which is not like 100K, but big deals, which is more like um, five to 50 million deals. And because that's where it does not teach in school, right? It's not even teach large companies like Salesforce, Oracle, IBM, and so on. So really excited to have you here, Jamal. Um, over to you. And if you want to share two practical pieces of advice, how you can go from closing five and six figures to closing seven and eight figure deals. That would be amazing. Sure. Great to be here. Thanks for, thanks for having me, Manuel. So I think there's two really big areas which are both actionable, but I need to oversimplify them because they're not like really quick hits. One is the whole concept of um, getting as high as possible within your accounts as quickly as possible. And in general, the way that it, the most successful ways to do that are either to include your own management team within that effort or other third parties who already have peer business status with the kinds of executives who you're trying to reach. So that could be, you know, in, in a startup or a scale up that if it's not your management team or members of your management team, it could be your funders, you know, investors, it could be your board of advisors, board of directors, anybody who is already kind of Sw um, swimming in those oceans, so to speak, with the relationships yep. where, where they already have them. That, that's one mind shift. Sh shift. That, that's a big change in how we operate. Typically, we bring in the heavy guns kind of toward the end of a sales cycle when things are almost wrapped up. But when we bring them in early, it helps us fail fast or <laughs> accelerate a very senior conversation very quickly. That's number one. Number two is really doubling down on how we create the value story. Um, I, I wrote a book. It's also called Mega Deal Secrets. And in that book, we talk about something that's called the Mega Deal Premise. Yep. And that Mega Deal Premise is this relationship between something that is really important to the C-suite of the customer you're trying to sell to. And on the other end of that equilibrium is something that's so unique or differentiated or special about the value or capability that your solution brings and what's the relationship between those two things. So we're not talking features and functions. We're not even talking about benefits. We're talking about business themes like how to move the customer's earnings per share over a three-year period. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's like really like the top, top level, right? And we see this so often, sales are like, oh, I'm in touch with like this uh, head of senior project manager. And I also talked to the intern and I get this question still too regularly. Like, should I go top down and bottom up? Like, why are we even discussing this? Th then the, the question always comes, well, but it is hard to talk, get a meeting with the CEO. So I start with the intern because I can have coffee every week. How do you get people from not wanting to be comfortable, but be successful and do what it takes to orchestrate like these, these C-suite meetings, right? Because it takes, takes cloud, takes confidence to go to your CEO, like, hey, mate, like you need to free up an hour of your time like tomorrow to speak to the other CEO, like I need you. Um, that really brings to mind something. Uh, one of the most influential people in my selling careers is, is a woman named Marcy Akers. 
And I call her my, my mega deal North star. She was never my mentor. She never kind of sat down and taught me what to do, but I, I watched her at Oracle from afar all the way back from like 2007 when I started, I was a rookie at Oracle. And um, she, I spoke to her relatively recently, like last year. And, and when we spoke, she said, one of the biggest things that I have always kept as a part of my uh, mentality was being comfortable being uncomfortable. Yeah. If we can live in a state of being comfortable with being uncomfortable, we will enable ourselves to do those things like reach very high very quickly engage with people who are far beyond ourselves in terms of role or title or mm -hmm. you know the american saying punch above our weight you know it's like 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 in boxing you, you know you're fighting somebody who's at a higher weight class and you're still able to win not that you're fighting your customers it's just an analogy but you get the idea. I, I love boxing myself i wouldn't pretend to be good at it but i think the energy is, is really is really working right so to stay with the boxing analogy when you when you nod when you're lightweight, right? It's very scary to go to heavyweight in the gym and say, like, let's spar for a round because then the heavyweight is like, okay, let's go. Uh, but then like, okay, but that's not good for you, right? You're not at my level. And you talk a lot about in your book about status alignment, right? It's like, oh, let me get like my, about status alignment in terms of like, let me get my EVP, my executive vice president to box with you because I'm not your guy, right? How do you do that without investing 100 hour weeks, which is a way... But nowadays, like, I think you found some very smart systems to get in, like, your senior stakeholder very early on to align with the other stakeholder and build trust quickly. So it really kind of begins, there's this whole concept of uh, dig a well before you're thirsty. Yeah. And what that looks like, uh, so in, in, in my career, I would work at companies and I would be in one of two states. Either I would already have a good relationship with my own management team or i wouldn't i'd be new and un unknown and i'd need to build that trust before i could really work with them in sales cycles um, if i didn't have that kind of a relationship or, or working history i would simply start to dig my well before i was thirsty by adding value to my own executives before i had a deal at play yeah so in yeah. one time i was hired into a startup to open a new segment, excuse me, they were um, really good at selling to the legal community and they mm -hmm. wanted to get into financial services and I had a financial services background. So as I was beginning at that company, I didn't really have any deals to work on, but what I would do is I said, I went to the C-suite and I said, look, once a month, I will hold a conference call. You can join or not join, but I will give you updates Mm -hmm. on what's going on in the financial services market that we care about. It was really VC and private equity and, and um, yep. in, uh, um, investment banking. And I would simply give them updates every single month about what was going on in the market, big deals that were done, relationships that were going up or down, uh, scuttlebutt you know, with the people I was talking with, et cetera. And they really appreciated it because it helped them get to know this market that, that collectively yep. the, mar the, the company was trying to break into. And so there I was offering value and building my own brand with this management team that was new to me. So yeah. when it came time for my very first ask, I got everything that I asked for because we had already established this relationship, even though we hadn't been working deals together. Yeah. yeah. So, and I think that that's what's lacking in the terms of like patient persistence, like for, for many sales people, like, oh, I need to hit quota this 
quarter, right? Like, oh, like, how can you, can you give me revenue? Can you jump in? Can you give me a lead, right? How do you get people to transition from what you call run rate mentality? You're always running, right? That's why it's called run rate setting to say like, okay, let me, let me maybe misquote the far quote. Let me work harder now. So I need to work less hard in the future, but be 10x as successful. I, I think part of the mentality that can help there is that if we treat our territory or our named account list, you know, the scope of the customers that are prospects that we have to work with, if we treat that um, grouping as a, a, an investment portfolio, that investment portfolio is going to have a mix of assets in it. Some will be safe and some will be more risky. Yeah. And nobody can get away from run rate sales. A company needs the heartbeat, right? The, 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 the yes. lifeblood of revenue, you know, uh, the lifeblood of the company is revenue. So yeah. you need that heartbeat pumping all the time, just at a, literally at a run rate. So you'll ne we'll never escape that. But yeah. some portion of our day, our week, our month, we can allocate to working on larger deals, more strategic deals, um, um, relationships that are going to take time to foster and to mature. Yeah. And that's a conversation we can have with our, our first line manager, our management in general, and come up, what's the percentage? Can I spend 10% of my time working a large deal? Is it more like 25? Yeah. And then once there's alignment there, that segment of time, you know, you've got to do the activities that are going to grow the big deals. Yeah. So would you say you, you never can just go to your managers like, I'm here to close mega deals. Like I will allocate 100% of my time. So how much of your time did you initially start investing to like developing like the Nginx deal, which you talk about in the book of your overall sales performance? Because that, that's like the extra hours. That's like the hours 40 to 50 to 60 to 70, I guess, in a week early on. So it's highly dependent on the type of role that you have. So if you have a, a, a geographic area, you're going to have a lot of accounts. It's going to be a super small percentage. Yeah. If you've got a named account list of, let's say, 10 to 30 accounts, it's going to be, you know, you'll have a greater percentage. But in my case, when I was working the Nginx deal, I had like four accounts. Yeah. And, and two of them, they didn't even want to talk to me because they were so much so in bed with the competition. So in reality, I had two accounts, so I could spend half or more of my time building that. But we have to acknowledge that not every seller has the luxury of having such a small list. And, it, and, and later, the, 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 the account where I did my first large deal became my key account. And in the key account relationship, you have one account with many reps under you selling lots of different, you know, in a big portfolio company like Oracle. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think at Ian Koenig on a podcast recently, right? So for me, like you, like Ian, you and Brendan Fluhart here, like you, see, you seem to be very closely connected, right? Like this free enterprise has legend across the ocean. We need to identify those on this side of the ocean. All they talked about in the beginning, you sell copious and you talk to like 200 people a day and then you talk to 200 people a month and then to 200 people a quarter and eventually he i think he only had two accounts how do you develop there right because somebody doesn't typically was like oh jamal you're fresh out of university i give you the four largest accounts and i'm completely fine if you take a year to develop one of them how do you develop that trust first uh trust with the customer or trust with yeah. your own company uh both both because like what i also see like in startup founders like they said i want to win 
like the biggest account in as to financial service UBS, or I want to win like um, VW or GM. And they quite frankly get on the balls of these people because every week there's like, hey, can we talk? Can we talk? I have something new. Can we talk again? And person like, I don't want your solution now. now move to another account. So how how do you do it going deep? If so, you mentioned two accounts didn't want to talk to you. So typically, when you have such a small account list, two things are true: the 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 account is very large, and you have many products to sell. Yeah. That's typically when you get kind of that kind of one, two, three account list per rep kind of a, uh, uh, you know, the strata within, within the sales team. So if that's the case, you're not going to be hitting up the same stakeholder month in and month out until you break through with them. Yeah. You're going to have multiple stakeholders for potentially for a single product. But on top of that, you've got multiple products. Yeah. So the, the stakeholder base that you have a reason to call is quite large. So you're not repeating a story, trying to break down the door with just one stakeholder. So it's a, it's a major account plan. If, if you, yeah. can, I mean, the spreadsheets I used to have were like <laughs> kilometers long with all of the different stake, you know, the, the organizational charts were, were very complex yeah. And then the number of reps and, and the different lines of action that we had across the whole <laughs> account strategy, it wasn't, uh, you know, it, we weren't selling one SKU we were telling, selling like 30, 40 SKUs at any one given time. Yeah. So, so you probably knew the organization of a customer better than some of the people working there, right? Because you just spent like 50 to 80% of your time, like understanding the org structure and the power maps and everything that that's not formally mapped on the org chart. And yeah. How do you how do you map this today, right? I mean, like people will a chief revenue officer like of Snowflake, like John McMahon will probably slap you if you're like, jump out, don't use spreadsheets anymore. Go map it all into Salesforce. Like, how do you administrate such a thing and make it accessible to your information so you get buy-in from your stakeholders as well and they understand what's going on? Because the risk otherwise is that other people get in your line, right? And you do something which you already talked to a person and, and the relationships are quite complex. So the question is, how do we how do we map out an account with, with a complex landscape? Who, who does what, right? Because if you have like, let's say 20 products or like you mentioned 30, 40 stock keeping units and probably 20 people working on that account, how do you make sure all the little informal dialogue is captured? And CRM is like an answer, but then it's a tricky one, as we know. Uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good question. It's a very detailed question. Um, I don't go to the... To the very small end of detail with that the way that i used to run we had an internal governance system that i put together for for my key account when i was working with one big account and the way that it would work is all of the reps globally would be invited to a weekly call with me and it's not yeah. necessarily a pipeline call because they didn't report to me they all had their own managers but they were you know I worked with the um, with the customers executives to set an overall strategy, and then I would mm -hmm. take that strategy back internal to the sales team, yeah. and we would all kind of march in the same direction. So we would align on the strategy, and then we would align on general uh, lines of action that each one of the reps would be taking taking care of. I would have my own lines of action, and we would iterate weekly to keep each other involved. But yeah. I certainly didn't manage them to the level where they're inputting all of the details into the <laughs> CRM system and things like that. 
Yeah, but I guess like then that that's a like that's a line of thought that is often forgotten because you always think like I need to build all the power maps on the kilometer long spreadsheet for the customer, but you probably need to do at least like 10 to 50% of that in, of the internal work, right? And you talked a lot about like, oh, I need to find somebody who's really good at contracting. I need to find like the expert on the product and, and building that out as well. Sure. And that would be a part of our weekly calls. So I, yeah. you know, in part of the session, we'd have this huge organizational chart up on the screen. Yeah. And then every week the reps would have somebody new to add. They would talk about a, you know, a conversation or something, you know, somebody, they would report back that somebody within the customer account had left or had moved laterally or up or down. And so, you know, the account um, organizational chart was this living, breathing document that changed all the time. Yeah, yeah. And and I mean, now let's maybe switch gears a bit to like your new company, Mega Deal Secrets, right? I mean, you, you've been like with Oracle for like a decade plus, then being advisor, then joined like a scale up, if you can call it that, like with Sama. Mm -hmm. And now is it like, okay, let me do my own thing besides being a limited partner to go to market fund with, um, the founders of uh, of basically like um, sales hackers and co. So what what was the trigger for you to go from individual contributor or strategic account manager to actually found their own company? I mean, it's, it's a large, scary step, right? In terms of income, in terms of like an organization around you. I think the, the first step started years ago when I realized that I simply just from my own personality, I didn't have any interest in um, going into sales management. Yeah. I knew that my entire career in the sales line of business would just be as an individual contributor. And yeah. I just worked on my craft to get better and better and better. And then at some point I realized, you know what? Uh, you can't be an IC forever. So what are you <laughs> going to do next if you're not going to be in management? <laughs> you, you did it for a long time, right? So congratulations on that. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say I had a pretty, you know, 20 year career. Yeah. And then in 2019, you know, the big thing was personal branding. So I thought, okay, let's try this personal branding thing out in the wider sales community. I started to get on different podcasts, just like now. Yeah, yeah. And the first one that I ever did um, after, the, after it aired within that week, like 40 or 50 sellers connected with me on LinkedIn. Oh, great episode, great story, mega deals. I, I want to do that. <laughs> you teach me and it, it just started to grow from there and then you know uh, i i started to just like for the fun of it start to teach and i said okay i'll get on zoom with you guys once a week and i'll just teach you everything and that iterated and changed and morphed into this thing that i do now which is a master class yeah and so that became a path for me to be able to teach what i've learned in this really niche area you know it's it's a it's a niche part of the enterprise sales. It, not only am I just in enterprise sales, I, I don't have much to offer to SDRs or BDRs. <laughs> this or is beginners. how you write your cold email subject. Like. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I only do the enterprise segment. And within yeah. that segment, I only do help with going from kind of normal size deals to super large deals. Which is a large niche though. It, 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 there's more <laughs> demand for it than I had realized. Yeah, yeah. And, and how do you structure that? I mean, every one of us goes through this, right? Like you start and you jump on Zoom calls and then you write one or the other template and then you build something in Kajabi, Teachify, Learnable, Thinkific, however you prefer. And then you start having group masterclasses. Like where are you on that journey and why do you want to take it in like Christmas 2022 and 2025? Uh, where we are right now is um, 
we work in small groups. One thing that we've learned is you can't make the group too big or the quality of the discussion suffers. Yeah. yeah so like the groups, the four groups to are, eight people typically. Um, five to 10. Yeah. yeah. Four yeah. to eight, five to 10 in that range. Yeah. And uh, we meet every two weeks. And another thing that we've learned is that boot camp training is maybe the worst form of trying to learn that there is. And what I mean by boot camp is where you put all the salespeople in a room for two days and just shovel them full of content. <laughs> just put like 100 hours. I had this conversation with a rep from Microsoft and it's like, oh, salespeople, we also have one. And he opened his laptop and it was like 150 PowerPoint slides, font size six. It's like, honestly, how much of that do you remember? Like close to zero? <laughs> so not useful. And, and I think everybody that comes into this experience understands that. So what we do is the learning part, which it would be the equivalent of those hundred slides. It's much less than that. Yeah, yeah. Is, is done in an on-demand environment whenever the reps want to do it. But when we meet, we're actually practicing the principles and utilizing the strategies on their existing accounts. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask, like, because there's this Orin Cloth model, right? Where you go in and you help somebody close like a hundred million funding round or like close like a really large deal and buy half of Hawaii pretty much. And, and then you just get a piece of the pie. And you say like, okay, I, I work with you. I put in my work and I put in like several more people for the whole status alignment, buyer journey, orchestration. And if you close 50 million, I get like 5%, which is still like two and a half million is good. Do you intend to do that, right? It's like closing deals as a service or do you want to stay like, I enable you to do it and then I charge a fixed fee and whatever? The idea has come up more than once. So it's in the back of my head, but I don't have any near-term plans to go to a uh, percentage basis. It'll be a fixed fee. Yeah, yeah, uh, that, that makes sense. And then maybe just if you want to share a few thoughts, like also with uh, your limited part engagement with go-to-market fund, I find that that's a fantastic concept, which definitely need to establish in Europe. Can you share with us a bit, like over the last roughly one and a half years, what was the trigger for you to, to do it actually? Like what have you experienced in being an investor as well in startups, I guess? My experience in investing in startups is through a seed round fund. Yeah. And all of the other LPs are also go-to-market specialists it's called the GTM fund. Yeah. And um, so I'm not the guy who's picking the, the uh, opportunities, the portfolio companies, but my, I, as well as the other LPs, jump in wherever possible to help the portfolio companies establish and grow their GTM capabilities. Yeah, no, I think that that's like the most valuable thing you can do. Like if it's like, hey, Max, like you, you did it, you do it at Outreach. Like, can you help us with sales engagement? Like, hey, Justin, can you help us with like um, this little thing called like building a, building a brand? Like, hey, Sam, can you help us with like LinkedIn? And like, this is, this is like amazingly valuable. So yeah, really cool stuff. Um, wrapping up with um, famous five, as, as what Nathan Lutz would call it, but if you can now take like a percentage of your salary in like equity or like in cash, like what do you take and why? Uh, equity, um, because, you know, I've established a business that kind of covers the bills. And so cash isn't something that I need out of a uh, what could be an investment. And uh, equity, because the kind of companies that come to me with, looking for advice or, or contribution are so early that the, the bump could be meaningful should they succeed. 
And it's really, really fun because a lot of them have such great ideas. And I only really help with companies who are in the sales tech space, which is something that I know fairly well and I have a good network. Really cool. Really cool. Yeah. And if you can choose to get a dollar from an existing customer or from a completely new customer, which one do you choose and why? Oh, existing. I mean, <laughs> it, it's a knee jerk reaction because it's that it's the, you know, the physics of momentum. It takes six times the energy to take something that's uh, not moving and, and, and give it the force of movement. And uh, once you have that relationship, as long as there's enough room to grow and you don't hit kind of maximum capacity quickly, that's the, the situation that I like the most. Yeah, love that one actually as like a closing statement. So wrapping up, like, I mean, we both agree, I guess, that run rate setting sucks sometimes. There's constant pressure, pace, pain of potentially not hitting quota. You went from missing quota to close, closing eight figures repeatedly. Three things I take away. Um, dig a deal before you first. You provide tons of value to your executives and key opinion leads before you need help. You did that first time you needed it. They were more than happy. Uh, second thing also run rate setting is fundamental but mega deals are actually game changing so you can never escape that early on but if you only have like four accounts two of them don't want to talk to you um you have much more time and capacity and energy to do it and the third one is also embracing multi-threading in a multi-product setting with major account plan so even if you have a kilometer long spreadsheet you need to orchestrate it not only on the buyer side but also internally um but you also learn that you don't want to go into management which is why you founded your own company, make it easy. So congrats on that. All the best of help. Uh, if you can be of any support, let me know. Thanks so much for joining. Thanks for having me, Mano.